following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, March 7th, 2021, on the basis of John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Some of you are aware that right now we're in the middle of a, a pretty major home remodeling project at our place. Basically, we are redoing the entire first floor of our house. And, and when we got started on that project about three weeks ago, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And now I'm not so sure. But not for the reason that you might think. You see, since the, the main floor is pretty much out of commission, pretty much all of normal everyday life in our house has been pushed either upstairs, where the bedrooms all are, or downstairs to the basement. But of course, once the, the project is finished, all of that normal everyday life will once again converge on that main floor. So on all of that brand new flooring, and those new kitchen cabinets, and those new countertops, and new appliances, and newly painted walls, those will all come face to face with every spill, every stain, every crumb, every somersault, every cartwheel, every collision, every greasy fingerprint, every snowy footprint, every muddy paw print. And that's why I'm beginning to think that maybe this wasn't such a, a great idea. In fact, if you ask me, maybe, just maybe, we should keep all of that normal everyday life upstairs or downstairs, or maybe it can all go outside, but not, not on that main first floor. I share all of that with you, not, not as any sort of criticism about my three darling children or our one wonderful puppy. Rather, it's, it's more an indication about me than anything else. In fact, if my kids were the ones up here, if they were the ones that had the microphone instead of me, they would probably tell you that when it comes to the house, their dad can be a little bit, well, let's just say particular. And in response to those accusations, I wouldn't try and deny it, it's absolutely true, but in my defense, I probably would point out that at the very least, I'm in pretty good company. When it comes to the house, I might get a little bit crazy at times, but did you see what Jesus did? We're right in the middle of this season of Lent, and throughout Lent, we've been talking about how there are some things in our lives that can't be repaired, that can't be restored, that can't be salvaged. They just need to be put to death and buried in the ground. And today, specifically, we're talking about dying to wisdom. Now, when we talk about dying to wisdom, we don't mean that if you are a follower of Jesus, you can't be smart. We don't mean that you can't think, that you can't get good grades in school, or pursue advanced degrees. No, by wisdom, we simply mean that there are certain common assumptions, there are certain natural instincts that we all have about how life works. There's sort of a normal everyday life for how we operate. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing inherently evil about it. It's just that when we bring that wisdom to our relationship with God, that's when we get into trouble. That's why we need to put it to death. That's why we need to bury it in the ground. And thankfully, today we're going to see that Jesus is here to help. When it comes to God's house, Jesus isn't just a little bit particular. He's passionate. He is 
zealous, as these verses tell us, to make sure that all of the wisdom that works just fine out there doesn't take a single step, doesn't leave a single footprint or fingerprint in here. As we look at these verses from John chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see that this place is no place for business as usual. So what happens in these verses, what Jesus does in these verses, is something for which Jesus is fairly well known, I think, in part because it seems so out of character for Jesus. In fact, I've preached on these verses a couple of times in the past, and each time I think part of the struggle is just helping people sort of picture what this would have been like. But thankfully, this time around, some recent events in our country can help us all relate, I think, to what Jesus did. So think about this. Jesus makes a special trip to the capital city. In fact, he goes to the very complex, the very building that is at the heart and center of their entire national identity. He goes at a time when the people who work there are carrying out their normal and necessary activities. And Jesus, very forcibly, we might even say violently, brings it to a screeching halt. He forces those people to flee the premises. He no doubt causes a fair amount of property damage. And he does all of this to send a very important message. Sound familiar at all? Aside from the issues at stake and the, the motivations in play, just on the surface, it bears a lot of resemblance to what happened in our nation's capital on January 6th. Only in this case, it's not a whole crowd of people that's being led by some guy wearing a strange buffalo hat. It's just Jesus causing all of this commotion. These are extreme actions. These are zealous actions, as John tells us, which forces us to ask the question, why? Why did Jesus do this? What had gotten him so upset? The activities that were going on in the temple, the, the buying and selling of different types of animals that would be offered as sacrifices, and the exchange of currency that was needed so that people could make their offerings at the temple, all of it was normal, all of it was even necessary for this Passover celebration. So that wasn't the problem. On another occasion, when Jesus did something very similar to this, he called attention to all of the greed and the corruption that had entered into these practices, but he doesn't mention that here. No, instead, the problem is that these activities were taking place in a place where they didn't belong. Jesus accuses the people of turning the house of his father into a house of business. And here's why that was a problem. You see, in the world of business, there are certain principles that govern how life operates. One of those principles is the principle of trade. Namely, that everything that you get, you get in exchange for something that you give. So an employee gets paid because of the work that they do. And a product is sold or a service is provided in exchange for the money that you pay for it. In the business world, things operate on that principle of trade, which means that in the business world, things also operate on a principle of tears. Not sad tears that flow from your eyes, but different levels. The business world puts people into different groups. The employee that works harder 
and works smarter is going to get promoted and is going to get paid more than the employee who does not. The consumer who has more money to spend is going to be able to buy things that the consumer who has less cannot. And all of that is perfectly normal. All of that makes sense. All of that is very natural in the business world. But Jesus says that this place is not a house of business. It is the house of his father. In other words, it's a house where a family lives. And in a family, things work a little bit differently, don't they? For example, I would imagine that after you're done feeding your kids this afternoon, you won't put a bill on the table for everything that they owe you for that meal, will you? I would imagine that after 30 days of sleeping under your roof, you're not going to expect your children to pay you rent. In a family, everything is free, which also means that in a family, everyone is equal. I'm guessing that you don't treat different children differently. I'm guessing you don't love them more or less based on what they do and how they perform. So those principles of of trade and of tears, they work just fine out there in the business world, but Jesus makes it clear that this place is not a house of business. It's a house where a family lives, which means that this place is no place for business as usual. I wonder if we would have gotten so upset at the thing that made Jesus get so upset. In fact, maybe at at some point in your life you have heard someone say or maybe even said yourself with, with just as much zeal as Jesus demonstrates here something similar to what Jesus says here. Maybe you've heard it said or said yourself that there is no place in God's house for something, fill in the blank. And so my question is, if that statement has ever been made in your hearing, what was being talked about? For example, we've maybe heard it said or maybe said ourselves that there is no place in God's house for kids who can't sit still and are too noisy. Or there is no place in God's house for goofing around and running around. There's no place in God's house for people who aren't dressed in their very best. There's no place in God's house for a, a certain style of worship or a certain type of music. Now, without a doubt, worthwhile conversations can be had about all of those things as we think about how we would want to act in this very special place that we call God's house. But none of those things is what got Jesus so upset. So what has no place in God's house? Well, the idea that in order to receive God's full and unconditional love, to receive his full pardon for our sins, to receive his full acceptance and approval, to receive the full status of being his children and his heirs, that we would need to bring something to the table to give him in exchange. Or on the flip side, the idea that if somehow we haven't been holy enough, if we haven't cleaned up our acts enough, if if we've committed the wrong types of sins or the wrong number of sins, that somehow we don't belong. Those kinds of ideas have no place in God's house. In God's house, everything is free. Which also means that in God's house, everyone is equal. I mean, think about it. If you went out shopping and you went to the highest end store or you went to the fanciest car dealership or you went looking for a house and looked at the homes that were only at the very top of the market, if everything was free, 
Suddenly you, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos are all on exactly the same level. If everything is free, everyone is equal. And so the idea that if someone is more educated or more gifted in a certain way, if someone has more money or wears nicer clothes, that in the church they are somehow more important, that too has no place in God's house. Those principles of of dealing with people on the basis of trades and separating people into tiers, they work just fine out there in the business world. But this is a house for a family. And so this is no place for business as usual. Which is a pretty bold claim when you stop and think about it. I mean, the idea that the principles that work just fine out there absolutely do not work in here. The idea that normal everyday life that works just fine Monday through Saturday does not work on Sunday is a pretty bold claim. And so to make that claim, and not just make it, but be consumed by that claim to such a degree that he would take such extreme and zealous actions, well, it's no wonder that the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus' words and actions the way that they did. They said to him, prove it. They said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? makes sense when you stop and think about it. In fact, I I can't help but wonder that as the people gathered there to celebrate the Passover, part of what might have been on their mind were some of the impressive displays of power that God had shown as he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt when that Passover celebration first began. So the plagues that he sent on Pharaoh and Egypt, miracle after miracle that he performed in the desert. It's no wonder that after all of those years, the people had been conditioned to expect that anytime God would act, they should expect to see a big and impressive display of his power. As we heard Paul say in that reading from 1 Corinthians, Jewish people are accustomed to asking for signs, expecting to see God flex his muscles when he wants to do something. It all makes sense. It's all very normal and natural. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Really, this was just the first of many examples where Jesus would consistently do this very thing if he was ever asked to prove his authority. If Jesus was ever asked to show a sign to support any of the big, bold claims that he made, and certainly the biggest and boldest claim that he was God's own son, Jesus always responded by pointing people to his cross, by pointing them to his death and his resurrection. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and as John tells us, the temple that he was talking about was his body, that sacred place where God dwelt. That temple would be destroyed. In fact, the very same type of whip that Jesus fashioned here would eventually be used on Jesus' own back. And the very same zeal that Jesus was consumed with as he drove all of these people out of the temple would eventually consume him as they tried to rid him from the face of the earth. That's the sign Jesus points his people to. 
This time, when God delivered his people, when he brought them out of slavery, when he made them his own children, he wasn't going to do so with some big and impressive display of power. Instead, he was going to do so with a big, impressive display of weakness. The cross is the sign that proves what type of house this is, which is one more reason why this place is no place for business as usual. Now, you and I have not seen firsthand, at least, all of the very same miracles that those Jewish people saw, and yet I wonder if in many ways we have been conditioned to have the same expectations they did. That if a a message is true, if a message is important and significant, so much so that it demands our time and attention, certainly if a message is from God himself, that we would expect that there would be certain readily identifiable markers that we could look at. And so if the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is one of those messages, we might be conditioned to expect that, for example, it would be popular. That the artists and the athletes and all of the celebrities with millions of adoring fans would consider it to be important and would talk about it. Or, for example, we might be conditioned to expect that the gospel message should be influential. That when CEOs of big corporations are making their business plans, or when politicians in Madison or Washington, D.C. are passing legislation, that they would take the gospel message into account and take it seriously. Or that we would be conditioned to believe that the gospel message ought to be impressive. That as we promote it, And as we publicize it, that it ought to be as loud and flashy, as glitzy and as glamorous as every other ad for every other product that we see. And yet Jesus points us to a much different sign. He points us to the cross. It is, first of all, a sign of weakness, not power. And as Paul also pointed out in 1 Corinthians, it is a sign of apparent foolishness rather than wisdom. In other words, it is a sign that is not going to hold a lot of currency out there in the world around us. And yet here's the beautiful thing about that sign that Jesus points us to. The cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, did not just prove that he was the Son of God. Those signs also prove that we are children of God. On that cross, Jesus didn't just defeat all of our enemies. Jesus also paid for all of your sins. Jesus also erased all of your unworthiness. Jesus also eliminated all of your guilt. Which means that through faith in Jesus, you too and I, you you and I also can claim not just that this place is Jesus' Father's house, but that it's our Father's house too. Through faith in Jesus, God puts the family name on us. Through faith in Jesus, we have a room in the house and a place at his table. Through faith in Jesus, we have a place even in his inheritance. This is the sign that proves that in this place, everything is free and everyone is equal. If in this place, the principles that that sort of govern life and are operative here are the exact opposite of the ones that work out there, then we would also expect the sign that proves it all, 
to be a sign that is just the opposite of the ones that work out there. And so, yes, that cross that seems like such foolishness and weakness is and will always be an object of our devotion and our praise. You know, to be honest, I've been looking for an opportunity to tell you that when it comes to my house, I'm a little bit particular at times, mainly so that I could give you fair warning. Because as you well know, you and I are actually in the process of building a house together. And when that house is done, everything is going to be brand spanking new. Everything is going to be shiny and clean and perfect. But of course, over time, there will be spills and stains and crumbs and somersaults and cartwheels and collisions and, and maybe the kids will even make a few messes at two at times. But I promise that I'm going to be okay with that, or at least I'll pretend to be okay with that, as long as you and I can promise one thing together, that that place will always be a place where there is never room for business as usual, where we take those common assumptions, those natural instincts that we might have about God, and we continually put them to death. So that that house is not a, a house of business. Instead, it's the house of our Father. It's a house where family lives. It's a house where everything is free and therefore everyone is equal. And it's a house where Jesus' cross is and always remains the sign that shows us that all of that is the case. Because as long as that's true, then it really doesn't matter whether it's this place or that place. And it doesn't really matter whether the place is brand spanking new or whether it's dirty and worn and tattered. As long as that is the case, then no matter the place, that place will always be our home. Amen.